Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 64, Antigonid Macedon of Revolutions and Reforms. The nearly 40 years of rule by Antigonus II Gonatas was a time of general order and stability for Macedonia. Antigonus's victories over the roving bands of Celts and rivals like Pyrrhus of Epirus had restored some semblance of peace to the kingdom after decades of civil wars and invasion. For the Greeks, the Macedonian noose only felt tighter. Despite Gonatas' alleged claim that kingship was but a noble servitude, Polybius states that Antigonus had set up more tyrants in Greece than any of his predecessors, a testament to the extent to which the king would maneuver to keep the Hellenic cities in check. However, the Greeks began to reassert their political autonomy, primarily through the rise of the federations, above all else the Aetolian and Achaean leagues. The Cremonidian War of the 260s was a severe shake-up, and despite Gonatas ultimately triumphing over Athens and Sparta, it was a taste of what was to come. Aratus of Sicyon, an up-and-coming leader of the Achaean League, proved to be the Macedonian's chief adversary in his later career. The Sicyonian seizure of Corinth from under Antigonus's nose brought the Achaeans great renown, and several cities overthrew their tyrants and opted to join the League as well. The Aetolians were nominally allied with Macedonia, but their reputation for brigandage and opportunism made them unreliable partners at best. In addition, the newest king of Egypt, Ptolemy III, was keen to disrupt the Antigonid control of Greece as much as his father by bankrolling any potential dissonance to Macedonian power. This is the situation that the new king of Macedonia found himself in by 239. Demetrius II, son of Antigonus, had likely been joint king during the final years of his father's reign. We know little about the man and his career. Perhaps he was 36 at the time of Gennatus' death. But shortly after his accession, he had entered into a marriage alliance with the family of Alexander II of Epirus. A change of policy to be sure, as both Demetrius Polyarchites and Antigonus Gennatus repeatedly clashed with Pyrrhus. And as a young man, Demetrius II had apparently triumphed over Alexander in a pitched battle. Alexander's widow, Olympias, had been the one to approach Demetrius with the offer of her daughter, Phythia. She was driven by concerns for the stability of the Epirot monarchy, as it seems that her sons were incapable of strong leadership, and recent attacks from the Aetolians had put significant pressure on the newly acquired region of Acarnania, just south of Epirus. Her concerns for the fate of the monarchy would ultimately prove to be correct, but Demetrius' decision to openly go against the Aetolian League is also curious, since they were allied with him against the Achaeans for the better part of a decade. It is likely because the hostilities between the Aetolian and Achaean leagues had subsided just a year or two before. As enemies continued to surround Macedonia, some of whom were explicitly anti-monarchical in attitude, one might as well take any backup that they could. Perhaps Demetrius aspired to incorporate Epirus into the Macedonian kingdom at some point, but we are not told this in the sources. Later in 239, Demetrius would marry Phythia, and by 238 she would give birth to Demetrius' more famous son, the soon-to-be Philip V. The marriage between the Epirot and Antigonid houses brought great consternation to the Aetolians, who rightly felt betrayed by Demetrius' reneging on the alliance. For what it was worth, Aratus and the Achaeans had made a brief peace in 241 with Gennatus. Aratus, however, had been provoking the Macedonians by launching raids into Attica and continually working to overthrow Antigonid-backed tyrants. 
The Aetolians may have had a frosty relationship with the Achaeans, but Demetrius had directly gone against the interests of their league, and Aratus's competent leadership was enough to inspire confidence in reaching some sort of deal. In 238, a coalition between the Achaean and Aetolian leagues had formed in response to the Antigonid-Epirot alliance. Though given the poor source material, it is quite possible that it was the other way around, with the formation of the Achaean-Aetolian partnership leading to the marriage arrangement between the Antigonid and Epirot dynasties. Regardless of how it came about, both leagues were now openly hostile to the Macedonians, and war would be declared on Demetrius by 238-237. It appears that fighting between both sides was scattered, at least when we try to reconstruct events. Aratus seems to have aimed for trying to gather further support and to incite a general revolt against the Macedonian rule in occupied cities. He unsuccessfully attempted to win over the support of Athens, who rejected the Achaeans after Aratus was falsely believed to have been killed in battle in roughly 234-233. The Aetolians were not faring much better. In 236, Demetrius launched an invasion of Boeotia, who immediately supplicated rather than faced the king's wrath. This severely weakened the Aetolians while strengthening Macedonian control over Attica, and Demetrius would also launch raids into the Aetolian heartland as well. Demetrius' constant warring is probably what led him to earn the nickname Aetolicus, meaning who is always fighting Aetolia. But Demetrius was faced with a handful of crises as well. Despite marrying Phythia to the Antigonids in order to strengthen their control, the royal house of Epirus had began to fall apart. The two young kings, Pyrrhus II and Ptolemy I, died in quick succession, the latter perhaps being murdered by his own subjects. Olympias passed away shortly thereafter, leaving behind two young princesses named Nerys and Daedamea. Nerys had quickly abandoned ship to marry a prince of Syracuse, but Daedamea tried in vain to hold her ground and keep control of Epirus. A shadow had fallen on the dynasty that once birthed the mighty Pyrrhus of Epirus, and the Epirots themselves decided that they no longer needed kings and queens to tell them what to do. By 231, Daedamea was murdered in the Temple of Artemis, and an Epirot league was established soon thereafter, a revolution if there ever was one. In most circumstances, the extinction of a rival dynasty wouldn't have phased any of the kings. It may have even been a sense of relief, depending on the circumstance. But the Epirots were a useful ally during wartime, and were now replaced with a league similar in design to the Achaeans and Aetolians. They were no more near as powerful, but a few of the regions previously tied together by the monarchy had joined with the Aetolians, and their proximity to the kingdom was surely uncomfortable for Demetrius. The loss of Epirus as an ally was bad enough, but the Macedonian king now faced another unsettling development, one of his own creation. While some parts of Epirus had defected to the Aetolians, others sought to stay independent, such as the city of Median. Median was placed under siege by the League in 231. The Epirots looked to Demetrius for help, but instead of leading an army to stop the Aetolians, the king decided to bring in an outside party, the Illyrians, more specifically the tribe of the Ardii, who lived along the coast of the Adriatic. Under the rule of King Agron, the Ardii amassed a powerful navy, one that was used to preying upon merchant vessels crossing from Italy. Demetrius bribed Agron to lead a force of a hundred ships and five thousand men to relieve the defenders of Median, and the Aetolians were soundly beaten in the subsequent battle. Mission accomplished, right? Well, not quite. The defeat at Median was a shock to the Aetolians and the rest of Greece, since the Illyrians had been thought of as little better than a fractious gang of barbarian pirates. 
In their defense, Agron and the RDI seemed to have been equally surprised at their success, and their celebrations were apparently so great that the Illyrian king imbibed enough spirits to die from alcohol-related complications shortly thereafterwards. Agron's son was too young to become king, and so it was passed to his wife, the formidable Queen Tuta. Polybius tells us that Tuta, blinded by the triumph over the Aetolians and her irrational nature as a woman, had aspired to launch a campaign of plunder and pillage against any Greek cities within sailing distance, including the Epirots that they had just came to the rescue of the year before. While the RDI were causing serious problems along the coast, Macedonia found itself facing the brunt of another Balkanite tribe, the Dardanians. These peoples have not had any significant presence since the days of Philip and Alexander, but opportunism due to the Aetolian War and or a rejuvenated leadership had allowed the Dardanian ruler Longarus to stream across Demetrius' northern border and smash at least one Macedonian army. As far as the Aetolian War had gone, it had been a long, dragged-out process. Success in Boeotia was a high point for Demetrius, but the collapse of the Epirot monarchy, the newly strengthened kingdoms of the Ardii and the Dardanians, and continuous hostility from the Aetolians and Achaeans had stretched the Antigonid ruler to the breaking point. The need to hire the Illyrians to relieve the Epirots implies that Demetrius was incapable of meeting the challenge in the first place, an indication of how the military capabilities of the Macedonians were seriously taxed. Never mind that, by bringing in Agron, he had unintentionally created a new problem that, in the short term, would be a major headache for the Greeks living along the Adriatic. In the long term, the emboldening of the RDI by Demetrius would lead to the intervention of a new power on the scene, the Roman Republic. A story for another day. But by 229, the situation had become a lot more complicated. In that year, Demetrius II would die from unknown causes, or perhaps in battle against the Dardanians. For the first time in the dynasty's history, a succession crisis emerged. Demetrius's only male heir, Philip, was no older than nine. Macedonian princes would serve in battle just as they began to emerge out of adolescence, but a nine-year-old was considered the child even by the standards of the ancient world. In addition, the security of the kingdom was at great risk, with enemies on all sides looking to prey upon the instability and inexperience of a young king. There was also a chance for danger from within. In Macedonian politics, a mere boy on the throne was an open invitation to civil war. Both of Philip's ancestors, Antigonus Monophthalmus and Demetrius Polyarchides, were quite aware of this when they tore apart Alexander's empire. Therefore, a solution needed to be found. Amazingly, it also somehow worked for the best. While the Macedonia assembly chose to have Philip become the king in name, the reins of power would be handed to a man named Antigonus Doson. Antigonus was the uncle of Philip, whose father was Demetrius the Fair, the half-brother of Antigonus Gonatus and the same man who briefly ruled as king of Kyrene before being assassinated in 248-247. But while Doson would prove to be a capable king and loyal guardian of the young Philip, the kingdom still teetered on the knife's edge. But for now, I'm going to pause our narrative of Macedonia, and instead look south to the rest of Greece. For at this time, events had been unfolding in the southern Peloponnesus that saw the dramatic shakeup of one of the former great powers of Greece. Let us turn to the Spartans.
gone were Sparta's glory days as Hegemon of Greece, following their hard-fought struggle over the Athenians at the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War in 405. Such a victory was to be short-lived. A decisive defeat at Leuctra by the Theban army in 371, and pressure from great leaders like Epaminondas had put an end to Lacedaemonian power, both literal and symbolic, for quite some time. When Philip II emerged as the ruler of a newly revitalized Macedonia and had ambitions for the rest of Greece, the Spartans were not in much of a position to lead any resistance to him. Many members of the Peloponnesian League had since separated from the Spartan yoke, and their kings spent their time either trying to reclaim whatever scraps of territory they could, or embarked on foreign expeditions like Agesilaus II's service to the Egyptian rulers Nectanebo I and II. Notably, no Spartiates stood with the force gathered at Chaeronea in 338. While their once legendary military prowess had since dulled, their wit remained as sharp as ever. Allegedly, Philip II had once threatened that if he invaded Laconia, he would bring Sparta to its knees. The magistrates appropriately responded with a simple, if. Though in the end, Philip did drive the Spartans out and captured much of their northern holdings without much of a fight. When Alexander took the throne following Philip's assassination, the Spartans did not contribute to the war against Persia. The Macedonian conqueror made his feelings about their relationship known when he dedicated spoils taken in the Battle of the Granicus River with an inscription claiming that, quote, Alexander, the son of Philip, and the Greeks, except the Spartans, won these spoils of war from the barbarians who dwell in Asia. Instead of fighting the Persians, the Spartans looked to them for help. King August III took advantage of Alexander's absence and began to openly raise a resistance movement, receiving financial support from the representatives of the great king of Persia. In 331, August marched his army into the Peloponnese against the standing region of Macedonia, Antipater. Outside of Megalopolis, the two fought a vicious battle before the few remaining Spartans were driven from the field and Agis died in battle. Despite Alexander's dismissal of the engagement as a battle of mice, it is worthy to note that Antipater suffered severe losses himself, and by all accounts, August fought bravely until the very end. In the age of successors, Sparta was but a blip on the political radar. The defeat at Megalopolis had humbled Lacedaemonian military power for decades, wiping out a huge portion of their central military body. They refused to take part in any anti-Macedonian activities, such as the Lamian War, and attempted to stay out of the way for the more ambitious players of the time. Yet, they could not escape unmolested during this period either. Demetrius Polyarchides nearly conquered Laconia in 294, possibly killing another Spartan king in the process for being distracted by other affairs. Twenty years later, fresh from his failures in Italy, Pyrrhus of Epirus had invaded the region to lay waste to Sparta in 272. The citizens inside, women, children, and the elderly, had put up a valiant effort and were able to defend against any forays by the Epirot king, who eventually decided to pack up and head for Argos instead. Perhaps with newfound confidence, the Spartans attempted to enter the foray of Hellenistic politics, especially during the reign of Arius I. With a remarkably long career, ruling from 309 to 266-265, Arius began to restore Sparta's status in the affairs of the Greek world. A brief but unimportant war against the Aetolian League ended in failure, but it is significant since the Spartans were considered capable enough to lead a coalition of some cities in the military campaign, something which had not been seen in several decades. The victory over Pyrrhus no doubt aided this notion, and Arius is said to have been campaigning as far as Crete when the Epirot king had attacked Sparta. 
The culmination of Arius's efforts would manifest in the outbreak of the Cremonidian War, as discussed in episode 38. An alliance between Athens, Sparta, and the King Ptolemy II would seek to challenge Antigonus Gonatas' control over Greece, and in 267, war would be declared against Macedonia. Sparta's resurgence under Arius was but a brief flash in the pan. He was killed in battle against Antigonus outside of Corinth, taking down much of the Spartan army with him. Following Arius' death in 265, we are completely in the dark, narratively speaking, regarding the events taking place in Sparta. From the year 244, we suddenly gain a tremendous insight regarding the turmoils that were afflicting the whole of Lacedaemonia. Our best source on Hellenistic Sparta remains Plutarch, who composed biographies of the kings August IV and Cleomenes III. He wrote them in parallel to the twin biographies of the brothers Tiberius and Gaius Sempronius Gracchus, the ill-fated reformers of the Roman Republic during the late 2nd century BC. Plutarch claims that by the mid-240s, the once austere city-state had succumbed to vice and greed. Gold and silver had poured into Sparta, which famously used iron as their currency to discourage the pursuit and hoarding of personal wealth, and they spent it on personal luxuries in quantities said to rival the Persian court. The accumulation of land by a select few individuals had gone against the principles of Lycurgus, who ordered that land be distributed equally among the Spartiates. Even the normally vigilant Spartan kings had become soft thanks to the pomp and circumstance of the court. To fix the issues plaguing the Lacedaemonians, two of Sparta's last great kings would try, in vain, to undo the damage of reckless greed and vice on the once virtuous Lacedaemonian peoples. Certainly, this all does sound quite dramatic and exciting. But in truth, we need to cast a critical eye with anything to do with Sparta as a society. Thucydides famously commented on how secretive the Spartan state was, which always obfuscated the efforts of ancient authors on trying to report on their customs, and modern authors who try to extrapolate. Plutarch is also a moralist, and the notion of society founded on the rejection of outside luxuries being faced with the uncontrolled spread of greed makes the story of August and Cleomenes so appealing to his sensibilities. The image of Spartan austerity and abstention from personal wealth also stands on shaky ground and the situation was more complicated. Plutarch does acknowledge the disparity of the Spartan wealth when compared to that of successor kingdoms, famously claiming that even the slaves of the Seleucid or Ptolemaic officials possessed more riches and property than both Spartan kings combined. His biographies are inevitably linked to the idea of the Spartan mirage, the notion that Sparta's early history is so heavily mythologized and idealized that it completely prevents us from accepting much of their generalizations on the way that they operated. But despite my emphasis on caution, Spartan society had indeed been changing rapidly throughout the 3rd century. For starters, a severe demographic problem had faced Sparta during this time. To the other Greeks, who generally kept citizenship a highly guarded legal status, the Spartan citizen population was considered diminutive even at the height of their power. If we are to believe the sources, much of this blame can be laid upon the system that created the Spartiates. These would be the true Spartans, the citizens who underwent the infamously brutal training of the Agoge and served exclusively as full-time soldiers. By its nature, the Agoge was inherently restrictive, and each Spartiate was a major investment in both time and resources. Each time the Spartan army suffered a major defeat, Leuctra, Megalopolis, Corinth, the subsequent losses of Spartiates would be catastrophic and very difficult to replace. By 244, Plutarch suggests that only 700 Spartiates could be called up for service, 
a mere shadow of the 5,000 that stood at Plataea in 479. Truthfully, the Spartiates had always made up a small proportion of the army, supplying most of the troops that would be known as the Periokoi, the dwellers around, the free peoples who lived in the larger regions of Laconia and Messenia that were politically united under the Spartan manor. But the collapse of the Spartan population was also aggravated by problems of land ownership, both external and internal. Because the Spartiates were exclusively dedicated to the art of war, the need to fill the void of agricultural production was supplemented by either the Periokoi or the Helots, the subservient peoples brutalized into becoming the unwilling economic backbone of Spartan society. Sparta had suffered major losses of territory during the 4th century, which therefore reduced the amount of available food that was required to supplement the army. Within the Spartan state, a sharp increase in inequality of land ownership amongst the Spartiates and the Periokoi had also been wreaking havoc on Lacedaemonian military capabilities. Of the 700 or so Spartiates that remained in the 240s, only about 100 of them possessed property of their own. Plots of land had been gradually concentrating into the hands of a select few, with the remaining majority displaced or squatting in cities. This in turn also hindered the ability of the Spartan army to draw upon troops under its current system, and would continue to degenerate as time wore on. The parallels between Hellenistic Sparta and the late Roman Republic are obvious, and it is unsurprising that Plutarch considered August IV and Cleomenes III natural counterparts to the brothers Gracchi. Notably, most of the property wealth was held by Spartan women, especially the ladies of the royal houses. Some ancient authors consider this a major reason behind the decline of Laconia. Not only does Plutarch claim that the princesses and noble wives had developed a great taste for finery that they did not wish to give up, but that they also feared that they would lose much of their political and personal power if they did so. Beyond its more misogynistic undertones, there is a degree of truth to Plutarch's point. Women in Sparta, noble or royal Spartan women to be more exact, did possess a greater control over their property and economic rights than their contemporary Greek females. The decline of the male Spartiates had reduced the amount of marriage candidates, and property subsequently remained in the same families. It is unlikely that they would be so willing to give up what they reasonably viewed as the base of their power and autonomy. Through numismatic and epigraphical evidence, we can see that the dual monarchy of the Spartans, the Diarchy, had been undergoing changes throughout the early Hellenistic period. The two royal lines of Sparta, the Eurypontids and Agiids, traditionally ruled in tandem with one another for centuries prior. Arius I, however, having taken the throne in the 300s, had begun to rule and present himself in a similar fashion as to his Macedonian contemporaries. It is during his reign that we see the minting of Sparta's first silver coins, which were nearly identical in design to those of Alexander the Great's. Court life began to take on a form not unlike those found in Pella, Antioch, or Alexandria. Arius's patronage of artists saw the crafting of large bronze statues in his image, unprecedented in the history of Laconian art. The ruling Agiad king of 244, Leonidas II, was said to have directly modeled his court after his time serving in the retinue of the Seleucid king Antiochus II. Though the Spartan diarchy inevitably had periods where one house was more dominant than the other, much of the evidence also suggests that Arius was moving towards an autocracy. Inscriptions repeatedly stress the preeminence of Arius and Agiad and neglect to mention his fellow Eurypontid king. The same thing occurs with Sparta's coinage, as Arius is the only one named on those famous specimens. In the past, the twin heroes known as the Dioscuroi were venerated in Spartan art to represent the two royal houses. 
from Arius onwards, Heracles, the demigod so commonly evoked by both Alexander and the successors, had been chosen as the sole model divinity. Even their titles had changed. Instead of the traditional Archigitae, we see a switch to the Macedonian Basileus, which carried all the dynastic implications not present in the former term. But even if we disregard changes in the visual presentation of the diarchy, infighting between the houses began to destabilize Laconia. Pyrrhus was drawn to Sparta in the first place on the urging of Cleonymus, an exiled Agiad contender of the throne who sought revenge against Arius because the latter's son had seduced his wife. As will be made apparent later in this episode, this rivalry is going to be a continuous problem. Paradoxically, as we see a gradual move to a rule of one, the power of the kingship was weakening. In Spartan government, the kings were constitutionally checked by the assembly, Gerousia, and a group of elite magistrates known as the Ephorate. While the Ephors had always had a high level of control and influence, they had expanded their power during the 3rd century. Most of the Ephors were part of the landed aristocracy that saw the size of their holdings grow, and were keen to keep adding to it. One of the Ephors introduced a law which overturned the established rule of land inheritance, which had previously been vertical in nature. This meant that instead of having plots remain within the family, now anyone could inherit them, which would be quickly exploited by the conniving to the further detriment of the Spartan people. It is at this point in the year 244 when August IV, Ayuripontid, assumes the throne. By the age of 20, he was sickened by the apparent softness of his contemporaries and maintained a rigid devotion to the customs of old. He absconded finery in favor of a simple woolen cloak, ate a bland Spartan diet which likely included famously vile black broth, and performed the traditional exercises and routines befitting a warrior king. But a mere lifestyle change was not going to affix the issues with Sparta at large. As I have explained, the demographic decline of Sparta was being aggravated by the gradual consolidation of land by the minority, and pathetically few Spartiates could have been produced under the current system given the economic disparity. August recognized the troubles afflicting his kingdom, and drew strength from the memories of his ancestors in the glory days of Sparta's past. To combat the issues plaguing his domain, August embarked in a political campaign of sorts. After polling both commoners and elites alike, it became quite clear to the king that many were clamoring for change. Among those he courted were Sparta's leading ladies, including his mother Agesistrata and grandmother Arcadamia, whom he successfully convinced to provide him financial backing. It is likely that they only supported Agus's mission because it could potentially restore power to the Eurypontid house and the monarchy at large, but it was still a substantial gain on the king's part. After acquiring enough money and political alliances, he was able to have an ally named Lysander enrolled into the Ephorate, who could articulate his viewpoints and pass legislation necessary to reform the state. The most important of these reforms introduced would be land redistribution. Appealing to the magistrates, August and Lysander argued for a return to the Lycurgan model, which had allowed them to achieve the position of a first-class power in the Greek world. All territory within and immediately adjacent to Sparta itself would be equally divided amongst 4,500 parcels to be distributed to the Spartiates on a one-to-one -one basis. The lands of the Periokoi would also be reorganized into equal 15,000 plots that would be run by those same Laconians and Messinians. Such a reform would greatly improve the quality of life of the many displaced Spartans and Periokoi, though, presumably, the king did not take into consideration the well-being of the Helots. 
But more importantly, the reorganization was to dramatically increase Spartan military power. Theoretically, the output would enable a force of nearly 20,000 strong, a smaller body of professional Spartiates supported by troops raised from the Periokoi. Agus's army would be comparable in size to those fielded by Macedonia or any of the leagues. To increase the amount of Spartiates, Agus would draw upon the fittest and most capable candidates among the Spartans and the Periokoi to be enrolled in the Agoge and the Common Messes, which would once again be instituted after following out of practice years before. The second major reform would be the cancellation of all debts. Agus contributed his own property first, along with a deposit of 600 silver talents to help pay off the arrears incurred by the population. More was to come from his supporters, which left many impressed by the seemingly genuine intentions of the young king. While the Sparta that Agus envisioned may never have truly existed, it nevertheless was a powerful image for both he and later Cleomenes to draw upon, an impetus for how Sparta ought to be. The response of the elders was lukewarm at best. Wealthy landowners immediately lobbied against Agis, finding their champion in King Leonidas. The Agiad ruler immediately lambasted his counterpart by accusing him of being a demagogue looking to become sole king, and he challenged the reformer's position by questioning the moral character of Lycurgus for his apparent hostile attitude towards foreigners. Agis retorted that Lycurgus found no fault with outsiders in of themselves, but rather those that did not line up with the Spartan ideal. He also dressed down Leonidas, explicitly calling out his past career as a courtier of the Seleucids, which had corrupted both his moral fiber and his memory of Spartan history. Little wonder why Leonidas was concerned about the position of foreign-born Spartans. His wife was the daughter of an Asian satrap, and thus his children were only half-Spartan by blood. Despite the passion pleas of August and Lysander, the motion was rejected by the Ephors. To retaliate against Leonidas, Lysander was able to invoke an ancient law which apparently forbade Spartan kings from taking non-Spartan wives and was able to prosecute the Agiad ruler, potentially on the penalty of death. Perhaps it was on trumped-up charges, but Leonidas was sufficiently concerned enough as to flee the capital and abandon the throne to his son-in-law, Cleombratus, for the time being. Lysander's term as Ephor soon expired, though, and now he was subject to a tribunal for illegally pushing the reforms, while Leonidas was recalled from hiding. August and his group realized that no change could happen with the current order, and decided a firmer action was needed. Convincing Cleombratus of the growing power of the ephors, the kingly pair and a band of followers descended upon the magistrates, forcibly evicting them from their positions, and replacing them with loyal members of their party. Despite the release of indebted prisoners and arming of troops, None of the ephors were killed, for August was looking to scare them into submission rather than inciting a massacre. Against the urgings of his more violent, and perhaps more politically savvy, allies, he even granted a safe passage for Leonidas and his family to leave unmolested. Although the Eurypontid king was fully in control of the monarchy and the ephorit, and was capable of introducing his reforms, he still faced stumbling blocks. The first was a member of his own party, his uncle Agesilaus. A man of ill repute, Agesilaus supported August because he himself had incurred numerous debts over the years that he was unable to pay off, and the chance to rid himself of these arrears was too tempting. As a member of the extended royal family, though, he was not too keen on the relinquishing of his many estates. Once before, he directly went against August's wishes. He had been the one to send assassins to murder Leonidas following the coup, which the king put a stop to upon discovering the plot. 
Yet again, he would look out for his own interests, though it must be noted that he was not the only opportunistic member of the reformist party, as many of the nobles who allied with August were highly indebted themselves. Agesilaus advised August that redistributing the land and cancelling the debts at the same time would be too radical and could lead to pushback from the elites. Absolving the debts first would act as an olive branch for the landowners, and so August ordered all financial documents to be gathered in the town square and burned as proof of financial manumission. The citizenry was happy to see the ashes of their accounts scattered to the winds, but still awaited the long-promised land reforms. Delay only made them more anxious, but such concerns were temporarily put aside when an envoy from Aratus of Sicyon and the Achaean League had reached the city in 241. The Achaeans had recently gone to war with the Aetolians during this time, and Sparta was called upon as an ally by Aratus. The average Spartan thought this was an excellent opportunity, as victory in battle would surely guarantee the speedy redistribution for their services. August agreed, and reportedly as king and army marched to war, observers were impressed enough with the orderly and silent procession that they dreaded to imagine what the Spartans must have looked like in their glory days. But, alas... August's triumph was short-lived. When he arrived at the camp of Aratus, who was in command of operations against the Aetolians, a disagreement broke out between them when it came to the manner of attack. Ultimately, Aratus decided on a cautious strategy, and, politely, dismissed the Spartans so he could ultimately win the day through ambush and trickery versus an open engagement. Perhaps Aratus, one of the many land-owning elites that made up the League, did not wish to see Agus's enthusiastic redistribution policies infect the Achaean cities, though there is no explicit proof. The dismissal was an impotent outcome to be sure, and humiliating for the cause of the Eurypontid king, but there were far worse troubles brewing back home than mere disappointment. When August was out campaigning, Agesilaus had been stirring up trouble during his term as Ephor. He had took on a personal bodyguard and levied taxes on questionable terms, which were funneled into his personal accounts. His misbehavior was so aggravating that it motivated another conspiracy to form, and Leonidas was recalled back to Laconia to overthrow the new institutions. Upon Leonidas' return, Agesilaus soon fled. The co-king Cleombachus was sent into exile, and the pro-Agus ephors were removed from their magistracies. August, meanwhile, who had since returned to Sparta, was forced to take sanctuary in the local temple to Athena, and was unwilling to leave the temple or take offers from the deceptive Leonidas. To save their own skins, several of August's former allies bargained with Leonidas by promising to hand August over. During one of the king's secret escapes to bathe, his observant ex-compatriots bound and gagged him, then tossed him into a prison. A virtual show trial was had but August refused to confess that he had broken any laws, for he was following the will of Lycurgus and had the state's best interest in mind. The arrest and subsequent trial of the Eurypontid ruler enraged the people of Sparta, who nearly rioted outside of the prison after their fury was stoked by August's mother and grandmother. August's lack of cooperation and fear of the populace resulted in the ephors quickly pronouncing the death penalty. The king was strangled in prison, while Agesistrata and Arcadamia were also executed by forced suicide. According to Plutarch, as August was walking to his execution, he told one of his crying attendants, quote, Man, stop crying for me, since my death, contrary to law and justice, makes me superior to my murderers. End quote. The death of August IV was a shocking blow to the stability of Sparta. 
Never before had any Spartan king been executed on the orders of the Ephors, and clearly the rivalry between the various factions was intensifying to the point where outright anarchy and civil war could explode. Perhaps if August was more willing to dirty his hands, his reforms could have stuck, akin to Agathocles' takeover of Syracuse. But the man appears to be more reserved and forgiving when it came to politics, which ultimately proved to be his undoing. But all was not necessarily lost for Sparta, and August's successor would not make the same mistakes as he did. The man to follow in August's footsteps would be Cleomenes III, Leonidas's son, who would restore Sparta from the verge of collapse and threaten to bring the existing political order of the Greek peninsula to an end. Thank you all for listening and supporting the podcast. There is not much in the way of show news for this week, and the next episode will continue where we left off in our narrative of Greek affairs. Pretty straightforward. If you want to help out the show, consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing with your friends and family. You could always contribute directly to production and maintenance through my coffee page, Amazon book wishlist, or by picking up some bookmarks or stickers based on show designs. All these links will be available on my website at hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com or the podcast description. But until next time, I hope you enjoy the final days of summer, and you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.